Good morning, everybody. Um, let me add my welcome to Carl's while I rearrange uh, the furniture. It would be really helpful if you got access to one of the church Bibles to have t uh, 1 Timothy 2 open at 11.92, and then you can check that what I'm saying is the same as what Paul is saying. Let's ask God to help as we seek to understand and apply this passage uh, for ourselves this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that as we uh, study together this portion of scripture, that you would help us understand it and then to apply it. Amen. So we come to the third week in our uh, sermon series that Carl has chosen for us in his first uh, couple of months here with us in Paul's first letter to Timothy. And we reach chapter two. Our purpose this morning, and I think probably also for the next few weeks, is to think together about what it is that characterizes a church which is fit for purpose. Let me say that again. To think about what are the characteristics of a church which is fit for purpose. So as a roadmap as to where we're going to go this morning, I'm going to first look to place uh, our reading in the context of uh, the letter as a whole. Um, then we'll look at the priority of prayer. Then thirdly, uh, roles of men and women. And we'll conclude with some implications uh, for us. Uh, and can I say it was lovely to have that murmur of expectation as I walked up uh, earlier on. Truly was. The people are looking to engage uh, with God's word. Thank you. So where are we in First Timothy? Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus, a church that he founded, Acts 19, and which he clearly cherished, Acts 20. But now Timothy, the younger one, is experiencing some local difficulties. And Paul writes this, the first of his two letters. Now, the very, very basic framework of First Timothy is you've got chapter 1, which Carl has been speaking about over the last uh, two weeks, which is about why the church was founded, and in particular, Paul's role as an apostle. We can then think of the rest of the letter, chapters 2 through to 6, as how the church can remain faithful to that apostolic foundation. These are chapters about right practice within the Christian church. Now, Paul in his letters is very gracious to us in that he usually makes clear his purpose and his audience when he's writing. And 1 Timothy is no different. 
If you look at the very beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 3, he tells Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This is Paul's purpose in writing. Timothy is given this instruction because of the existence of false teachers in the church. Then on the to whom the letter is written, look at the very end and look at uh, chapter 6, verse 21. Paul signs off, grace be with you. Now the you there is you in the plural. So it's actually he's writing, grace be with you all. And I think that's really important when we study this letter. It's addressed to Timothy, but it's written to, and Paul is expecting it to be read by, the whole church in Ephesus. So it's a bit like one of those open letters to the Times. You know when a a bunch of of doctors uh, or experts uh, get together and they've got an axe to grind and they write an, an open letter to the Times and it's addressed to the editor but it's certainly not the editor whose attention they're looking to grab. It's all the readers. It's everybody. And Timothy is like that. Paul is addressing it to Timothy, but he's expecting it to be read by the whole church. So with that in mind, let's turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2 quite clearly breaks down into two sections. The first seven verses deal with prayer. And the last eight verses deal with the roles of men and women. So first of all, then, the priority of prayer. Verses one to seven say three things about prayer, about its priority, about the scope of our prayers and about our basis for praying. First of all, the priority of prayer. First of all. Paul says, I urge that prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made. First of all, is about priority. The number one priority for the church is to pray. Secondly, the scope of our prayers, to pray for all people. Prayer should be our first priority, but should be universal in scope. Verse 4, because God desires that everybody should be saved and come to know the truth of the gospel. And what an important reminder that is for us, how easy it is for us to pray first for our own concerns, for ourselves, to be inward looking, for us as a congregation particularly at this time it's all changed we have a new rector let's think about ourselves let's pray for our ourselves um no says paul first of all i urge you to pray for all people i urge you to pray for the mission of god i urge you to pray so that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives so that that mission may go ahead unhindered Very interestingly for us this week, 
Paul gives the specific example of praying for all kings and those in authority. That means quite clear implication for us this week. We need to be praying for Donald Trump. Because it doesn't say all Christian kings. In fact, who was on the throne when Paul wrote this? It was Emperor Nero, and Nero had already had one go at killing Paul. I urge you to pray for all kings and those in authority. It is our Christian duty, ladies and gentlemen, this week to be praying for Donald Trump, to be praying for the new president of Gambia, to be praying for Theresa May. The Bible is utterly clear on that. But that is as a subset of praying, first of all, for all people. The priority of our prayer, the scope of our prayers, the basis of praying is the one mediator, Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, Job struggled to pray. Job 9.33, there is no arbiter between us, that's between God and me, who might lay his hand on us both. In the Old Testament, Job finds the gulf between himself and a holy God too wide to be able to cross in prayer. There's no arbiter, there's nobody that can bridge the gap, that can lay their hands on both me and God at the same time. The bridge is broken. Now, in Jesus, fully God and fully human, we have that arbiter that Job didn't know. What Paul would here would describe as a mediator. There is one mediator between God and people. The man, Christ Jesus. And he becomes that mediator on the cross. Which is the basis which opens up that route to prayer. And so when we fail to pray, when I fail to pray... I am forgetting who Jesus is. I am diminishing the work of Jesus on the cross. Because that is the basis on which I pray. So Paul's first instruction to Timothy concerns prayer. In the second half of chapter 2, Paul moves on to give three instructions about the roles of men and women. Number one, the need in every place for praying men. Number two, that women should clothe themselves in good works, verse 10, and not expensive apparel, verse 9. And thirdly, that women are not to exercise any teaching ministry in the church that involves authority over men. Now, Ernie read that very clearly. I think it seems to me that what the Bible says is very clear on those three things. The question is, what are we going to do with them 
in 21st century Britain. Now, there are some people that say that we can just safely ignore them, either because Paul was off his rocker, or he was a misogynist, or actually it was just an instruction to the local church in uh, Ephesus at that moment. Um, my strong sense is that we're not at liberty to do either of those things um, for two reasons. One is if we want to uh, dismiss Paul here, we also have to dismiss him in 1 Corinthians. And there aren't many genuine Christian men and women that want to dismiss Paul in 1 Corinthians. Second, it strikes me that his appeal to the created order makes it highly unlikely that he was just talking to one church at one time. That, again, would not actually make sense of what the text says. So we're left, I think, with two possibilities if we're going to act with integrity today. Possibility one is to do what the Bible plainly teaches in those three areas. <coughs> Possibility two is to seek to transpose that teaching from the culture of first century uh, Ephesus into our own culture and to seek to interpret what the equivalent teaching would be in the Christian church in 21st century Britain. Now, I'm not going to do the work of saying which of those two that you should do. Uh, largely because in the Church of England that's not the role of the curate to do so. There are churches within a few miles of us that have adopted each of the two uh, principles and you could quite easily work out and go to which they are. What I will do however um, is three things so that you know that I'm not ducking the issue. One is to say that I'll be at the back of church as I always am and if you have questions or concerns then come and talk to me and um, trees is out for the day so um, I've got till uh, six o'clock tonight and we can talk for as long as as, as long as you like. Um, the second thing I would say is that the people that want to transpose historically have more work to do with the Bible than the people that would just say, do what the Bible says. And again, Paul's appeal to Genesis 2 means you've actually got to do quite a lot of work with the Bible to do the cultural move. <coughs> However, it is also abundantly clear that the people that want to do just what the Bible says have an awful lot more work to do in our modern day culture. So you kind of pick where you want to do your work, but you're not free of doing work whichever you choose. The other thing that I would say is that if you look at the three exhortations, the one that it strikes me that we are plainly the most lacking in the church today, and it's probably true in this church, just to wind the men up as well, the one that we're most lacking is praying men. Of the three things that Paul asks, the one that the church in England has the fewest of, has the biggest problem with, is men who will pray everywhere. And so if we're going to take this teaching seriously, we have to include the need for praying men 
And I think that is a real challenge to most of the churches in which I've been over my Christian lifetime, a lack of praying men. Come and grab me later or over uh, the week if that's helpful or important to you. But I want to conclude with some implications of the first part of the passage, that bit on the priority of prayer. If the church is to be fit for purpose, where do we start? Paul says we start with making prayer our number one priority. Now, chances are that you've had, um, I know some of you have been worshipping at St Mary's for 40 or more years, and you've probably heard quite a lot of um, uh, uh, sermons from kind of here or up there in, in, in the old days saying um, that prayer is really a very good idea and we should really do more prayer and we need uh, to make prayer a priority. And I suspect, like me, you've probably read some books uh, or heard some, some tapes or some sermons online which say prayer is really, really quite important and we should do more praying. And I doubt, if you're anything like me, you ever left one of those talks thinking that was a silly idea, I'm not going to do that. But also, if you're anything like me, what you probably did do is you left that talk thinking and feeling a bit guilty that you don't pray more. And also, if you're anything like me, kind of three months after that well-intended sermon was preached, I doubt you could look back and say, well, that really changed my life. Maybe one or two did, for one or two of you, and praise God for that. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we've heard plenty of times the preachers say we should pray more, and it's a real priority, and the Bible says prayer is important, and we all agree, and then we will we don't change very much. So I've challenged myself this week in my preparation to look at what we could do that's different uh, for me, and then we'll see if this works for any of you as well. There is a verse tucked in our reading, which I missed the first few dozen times, and I suspect, um, particularly with all the interest in the second half of the chapter, most of you missed uh, as uh, Ernie was reading it, which actually is one of the most shocking and disturbing verses in the whole of the New Testament. Look with me at uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says of prayer, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, God desires that all people be saved. Now, when we stop and think about that verse, it strikes me as plainly obvious that not all people are being saved, that not all people will be saved, that not all people who've lived on this earth have gone to their grave having been saved. There are unsaved people in the world. But God, Scripture says, desires that all people be saved. Now, if you take that to be true, if you hold that to be true, 
then it strikes me that the only logical follow-on from that is that God is disappointed. God desires all people to be saved. Not all people are saved. Therefore, surely God must be disappointed. And then, from the, from the verses either side of that, God, in his providence, ordains that our prayers are part of the process by which mission occurs and people become saved. We are to pray for all people that we may be godly and quietly governed so that the work of Jesus on the cross might be proclaimed to all people in all nations, that they may hear the truth. But not all people are saved. And God is disappointed this morning. And therefore the challenge, as I read these verses for myself, is that every time I fail to pray for other people, God's disappointment grows a little bit. God's disappointment grows a little bit. Because he desires that all people be saved. And he instructs me to pray, first of all, for all people. So my resolution uh, to myself, I invite you to join uh, with me, and I think it's, it's a far bigger challenge than anything else uh, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, is to begin each day not praying for myself, but praying for all of God's people, all those whom he made, all those whom he loved before they were born, and all those whom he desires would be saved. And maybe that way we can make prayer a little bit more of a priority in our own lives as we go from this place this morning. Let's ask God to help us to do that. <coughs> Loving Heavenly Father, we sit before you this morning reading that you desire for all people to be saved. For the truth of the work of your Son on the cross to reach all nations, all people. And we ask that as we seek to apply this to our own lives, you would give us the faith and the strength and the motivations to commit ourselves in prayer for all people, as your word would instruct us. We know that under our own steam we will undoubtedly fail and we ask for your grace that we may be obedient to your word. Amen. <laughs>